Welcome, friends and fellow philosophers, to the Wild Isle podcast. I have with me Alan Ernest. How are you, Alan? Doing wonderful, man. Glad to be here. You know, it's, we've been trying to set this up for a while, like weeks and weeks and weeks, and uh, just had trouble, illness, and then bad scheduling and all kinds of things. Um, and what's really funny to me is that as, you know, through time, you would have thought, okay, well, you know, what the hell are we going to talk about? We didn't decide. So be prepared for a wild ride, ladies and gentlemen, philosophers out there. And if you're not a philosopher, you're about to uh, find yourself in deep water, perhaps too deep water even for us to swim in. Uh, but before we begin, I'm going to shill a couple of things. So for those of you who do not know, I am an author of uh, fantasy fiction. I have a book out right now called Wand Smoke Broken, um, featuring a couple of outcasts living in a little coal mining town, become a, let's see, we'll try to become occult villains and then discover that maybe being a villain is not a great idea. Uh, and by the end, they're like nice small town heroes. It's fun. Uh, reads a little bit like a Western uh, in a kind of late fantasy settings so go check that out you can find it on amazon or my website wildislelit.com and while you're there check out some of the other stuff i've got i run a philosophy yeah philosophy based blog right now we're going through the dhammapada it's one of the buddhist texts and i'm analyzing that chapter by chapter per week uh, but i've also done uh, the four books of confucianism uh, i've done the two main Taoist texts the zhongzi and the Dao Te ching um, so there's always new stuff each week uh, you can check that out there and also, I have an editing service. Now, beware, uh, fellow philosophers, I'm actually going to be updating that soon and revamping myself. And it's going to be more of a uh, Wild Isle style guide. I'm going to dig in deep into a niche. Um, and so be on the lookout to check that out. Anything else that I want to sell? You want to sell anything, Alan? No, I don't think so. No? No, sir. All right. So mentioned deep waters we were just talking before we started uh recording about essentially the uh fallible grounds upon which many a relationship are founded and you know you can you know just look outside my apartment and see the decay and decadence of the uh let's say pseudo cul-de-sac if we want to call it that it's more like a dead end alley uh at the mouth of which is a rotting what used to be a church where ne'er-do-wells lurk about the corners um so you know what do you think about all of that like you you were mentioning before people they don't we'll start with like uh the relationship maybe just between like uh, a husband or wife or you know like uh the two spouses and then stretch it out to the family and the community beyond so like what what the hell's going on man um i mean I think a lot of it has to do with like compatibility. Um, you know, when you meet somebody, uh, do you get along with them? Uh, is the conversations good? Uh, is there that spark between you two, you know? Um, and like one thing that I've been digging into lately is, uh, numerology. You ever heard of it? I have, but I, uh, mostly stayed away from numerology. Um, Yoon brings it up in a few of his books. He tends to relate certain numbers to uh, certain psychological phenomena, particularly multiples of three and four, where three tends to be, um, let's say, an incompletion of self, and four represents the incorporation of uh, the full self and individuation, um, moving from like a triangle to a square. And he goes into that in Ion, and I thought I understood the first time I read it, and then I read it again and was realized I didn't understand it at all. 
And then lately, I'm uh, listening to a lot of James Lindsay, and he has noted that uh, particular derivatives of the occultism that was popular in like the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, and really is still popular today, are fixated on the number 17. Um, though I don't know why. I have the book that probably brings up the number 17 on my bookshelf, like the Hermetica. I just haven't had time to read it because I haven't had time to read the gigantic piles and piles of books that fill up about half of the room. Interesting. So tell me what you know about numerology, man. I'm fairly uh, new to it, I should say, I guess. I just uh, kind of stumbled upon it. Uh, I get in these like weird little things where like I... Uh, Something interests me, so I kind of dive a little deeper into it. And uh, here lately, it's been numerology. Uh, there's this guy out there called uh, Gary the Numbers Guy. GG33 is what he calls it. But, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but uh, his personality is like really abrasive, you know, kind of like uh, cocky, um, arrogant. But I think there's something to that, too. You know, like we uh, appeal to that kind of thing, like the uh, drama in it, maybe you could say. I don't know. It's a confidence, right? Like, it is. It is a yeah. confidence. Yes. Sometimes it's a it's a narcissist, but sometimes mm. it's a true leader. And it's kind of hard to tell mm -hmm. the difference. Fine line. Yes. Very yeah. fine line. Um, so, you know, when when I started, like, kind of digging into what he was about, it was uh, it was interesting because, um, for instance, I'm a life path number nine. Um Let's do one with you. When's your birthday? Mm. Uh, March 23rd, 1992. March 23rd. Now everyone on the internet knows my birthday. Uh, March what? 23rd. Three plus two plus three. What year? 1992. Plus one plus nine plus nine plus two. You're a uh, master number 11. You're a uh, rare breed. <laughs> yes yeah, so uh there's life paths one through nine i'm a nine and then they have the master numbers 11 22 and then 33 33 there's 33 vertebrae in the human spine uh 33 degrees in masonry uh that's just the beginning i mean there's 33 in history if you can tie it to things it has this symbolic just meaning i don't even like it's hard to even describe for me because i'm not like a master of numbers or anything they've never been something that I was like interested in like honestly math was never my thing but <clears throat> as far as like what this guy does it's it's incredible because like he says that when you're born you're imprinted with an energy okay so uh I'm a nine so my my energy is like humanitarian I I do better seeing other people do well like that's and I and I couldn't agree more with that like I <clears throat> I've noticed through time that I'd will give up myself to make others happy. Like, and like the older I've gotten, the more I've, you know, realized that like, that's one of the things I have to be like cautious of, you know, like uh, be mindful that like, you know, I'm important too. Right. So um, he, he's actually a 33. Some other 33s was uh, <clears throat> I think Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Edison. Uh, I believe Elon Musk is a 33. Um, he, he claims that there's, if, if a 33 has invented something then that is the only thing that people pick up on like their their energy is so influential and they're so smart that 90 percent of the things that we have today have come from 33s so i mean it's it's, it's interesting i, I mean I, I how true it is i don't know but i, I from what i can see it, it there's something to it man so the way that i approach such things uh because i'm a a skeptic by nature i come out of like the uh from my teenage years the new atheist movement um though i like to play around with the 
I don't want to call it the utility of things, but, um, you know, through my early 20s, started listening to a ton of Jordan Peterson, as I'm sure many of you listeners also have. And what I really liked, and I'll connect this back to numerology here in like three seconds, um, is that Jordan took a took an approach to religion that made it for me both palatable, palatable, um, and also, um, let's say, uh, Nietzsche might call it something like a tool of life affirmation, right? Something that I could then use as an interpretive structure to benefit myself and others, and uh, let's say again, Nietzsche might say fulfill the will to power. And so you could kind of look at numerology in the same way. And honestly, um, Yoon looks at both alchemy and um, mm. astrology in that lens explicitly. Like, um, I actually have a book. Oh my, I have books on freaking everything that I haven't had a chance to read. But his book on alchemy and then uh, his, uh, let's say, uh, volume nine, or sorry, uh, part nine, volume two, something like that, of um, it's Ion, right? The archetypes of the collective unconscious. And then the second part of that is Ion from Yoon. Uh, he specifically digs into astrology and the let's say relationship it has to our he didn't use these words exactly but it's like our inherited psychology so now let's tie it back around to numerology so if i would do would say give the devil his due what i would say is that there is some imprint on our instincts um to have a certain affiliation with certain numbers um now if that is the case, if we're, we'll assent to it to be the case. The question is, well, why would that be? And the uh, if it is true, then the answer would be that there is something about the um, nature of the objective universe that has patterns in it. Those patterns correspond to numbers. That's not very far-fetched, right? Like, um, not at all. In the same way that it's it's not far-fetched that there's a it's a tendency to, for things to form disks and spheres because of how gravity works, right? Well, that's geometry. Now, would it be so weird to think that certain number patterns appear mm. with things? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, particularly uh, here on Earth where we have a particular set of conditions. So we have a line of ancestors. Those ancestors survived, survived based on how well they conform to the objective conditions of the universe, which means that if there's some numeric pattern um present in the way that the objective universe is ordered well all of your ancestors that did not conform to that did not reproduce successfully and died and so therefore the ones that uh did conform to it passed on their genes therefore it's likely that an instinct over time would come to have uh, for lack of a better word shaped itself around that pattern which is in association with the number right um it gets a little bit more uh what's the word dicey once we start getting into like uh they say something like the number 33 predicting the great men of history and like the ubermensch but maybe it does who knows right right right, right. um it's fun it's certainly fun to think about fun to play around with it is um it is but yeah but even just um uh, you know for the utility of this like the reverse engineering i just did uh actually brings about a utility in numerology regardless of how accurate the particular claims are right um uh does that make sense like uh what i'm saying there like uh, absolutely yeah so absolutely so like even if for sure like 33 isn't the exact number the idea that there is some let's say that patterns are not mere abstractions right patterns are um how we describe something that is uh, essential and fundamental, um, which means that there are 
let's say, non-material realities, or, or rather reality has something like a non-material component, or at least what we would consider non-material. But what that means, again, now we're now we're getting sketchy again, and I have to, I have to shut myself up before I run myself into the Sorry, hole. keep going. I'm, I'm really uh, I'm picking it up what you're putting down there. I really am. It's good stuff. Well, uh, I actually had a question because you brought up, uh, we, we jumped into <clears throat> numerology through uh, the subject matter of the, let's say, decadence of relationships. But you did mention uh, something about like a spark. And that reminds me of numerology a little bit in the sense that like, what are we talking about? We're talking about a spark, right? Because we're we're talking about something in the same vein of, I don't know what transcendental reality, right? So, like, is there is there some type of matching pattern between people in the same way? Like, there might be some matching power, pattern between um, the way that I don't know numbers are. Uh, what's the right What's the right word associated with or correlated with certain? You know, dispositions of personhood, something like that. Okay. So, what did you mean when you like? We're hitting on the idea of a spark between people. Um, like I said, uh, with the numerology, <clears throat> the energy that you're imprinted with, um, I guess when if we're going, still going down that that, that path. Um, also, another thing that he uses is like the Chinese zodiac. So I'm a snake. You know, year I was born in 1989. Um, and for instance, my kid, the kid's mother is a monkey. So uh, the compatibility between us is not really that great. I, I, I guess you could say we're not like a highly compatible match. No, snakes and monkeys are enemies, actually. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, it, it, it's not far from it, yes. It's yeah. like literally one year apart from being like real bad, I think. So, uh, but like, <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is, is like that energy <clears throat> that that I was imprinted with and the energy that she was imprinted with, maybe it was like that opposites attract type of thing. Like uh, um, we're also in the age of Aquarius and they say that like um, the age of Aquarius people um, are attracted to like uh, opposite, uh, like gen, like not gender, but like uh, skin color. Um, it's, which I think that's fascinating in a lot of ways, but uh, I don't know. I guess that what I'm trying to get at with that spark is uh, maybe it's timing, you know, maybe it's, uh, like where you're at in your life. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you just like set out the door to say like, today's the day I'm going to find me a, a, a kid's mother, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to take that leap. Like, you know, so like, like a lot of things have to go, like, I would, I would think really well to get to that point, you know, to where, you know, you, you hit it off. Maybe it, it was attraction by like the way you saw her, you thought she was beautiful. And then maybe you thought she was smart because of the way she, she spoke, you know, uh, I, like I don't, I don't really know what that spark is, but like you, you know what I'm talking about. Like you, when you, when you meet somebody, and like with us, you know, when I met you, it was kind of like very intriguing to me to like listen to you speak and how in depth you go with like you could just tell you were passionate about what about this, you know, like human psychology, um, uh, just stuff that I like am a rookie to. I don't really know a whole lot about it, but it's very interesting to me. You know, I, I really enjoy like hearing people that know things about this. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know exactly where I'm going with all that, but. Well, let me see if I can jump off somewhere from what you said, something you said. Um, so funnily enough, I don't know if you picked <clears> up <throat> on it. Um, my zodiac sign for the China, uh, Chinese zodiac is a monkey as well. Wow. No, okay. I didn't. 
And so I want to relate this back to uh, one of Yoon's, Carl Yoon's ideas. And he thought actually that, um, well, this is going to, I'll go a little bit deep with it, but I think maybe that'll be more fun. So he thought within each of us is uh, an instinct that is the self archetype. Now the self archetype is also what he called the God image. Um, and I'll, I'll be parsing in some of my own thought on this, but uh, so I believe it's Aquinas. I have a giant chunk of Thomas Aquinas' selected work, which is like paltry pittance compared to his whole collected work, which would probably stack up to my ceiling. I'll never read my life. Huh. But uh, as far as I've heard, I think it was Aquinas's definition of God is that is which is. And I really like that definition, right? So if God is that is which is, well, that means God is the universe as it is. God is the order that is kind of the backstop that prevents everything from falling into randomness and chaos. Um, God is as things are aside from how we experience them and aside from our mere subjectivity, right? <laughs> um, that's why people would say, well, why is God omniscient and omnipotent? Because reality is as it is, so that nothing hides from reality. And you, when it's, when it's you versus reality, reality always wins. And that makes it relative to you all powerful. Well, mm. okay, so God is that which is. And I just talked about how um, our ancestors, like evolution impressed itself upon our ancestors, right? So if our ancestors were out of accord with reality, out of accord with God, that is which is, they died and didn't reproduce successfully. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means, um, let's say it's a Taoist idea. Uh, let's say, what is it? Um, fragmentation betokening uh, virtuosity, something like that. Where the idea is that actually virtue is obtained through being broken against reality. And the idea is that the breaking up against reality uh, fragments you in such a way that you can now fit into um, the position that reality has for you. So mm. it's like if you have, uh, that would be, uh, if we were talking about in like a, a Christian perspective, it would be something like, god's purpose and place for you but for you to fit there you have to run yourself up against reality and let all of the um parts of you that are insufficient chip and break off painfully and terribly for yourself to be able to hmm. fit that role well that role is what Yoon thought of as the self like the there's two different self archetypes but like the whole self the self archetype uh the god image okay so how are we relating that to um that spark idea well if Yun is right and we have a set of instincts that are let's say geared to increase the chances that we fit into our potential place in the universe or our potential uh fulfilling of god's purpose for us if we happen to be religious well then it makes sense that when you are selecting a partner you're not just you're not merely or only selecting a partner based on the chances that your uh, offspring are going to uh, successfully reproduce because that's actually not advantageous enough what's more evolutionarily advantageous is if you have an instinct in you that you're going to pass down to them to make sure you're going to succeed in that reproduction um, not just you but your lineage across time because now it's not just you it's you and their descendants and their descendants and their descendants and if you have some instinct in you that orients you toward that long-term propagation across time, that fulfilling of potential that puts you and therefore all of your descendants in accord with reality or in accord with God, then you are going to have an instinct that drives you to find a partner that's going to break those pieces off of you that are deficient. 
right? And that oftentimes means mm. finding someone who is in some ways or perhaps many ways in opposition to you because you need someone, uh, this is Jordan Peterson now I'm taking from, you need someone to contend with who is going to force you to, let's say, get rid of your <clears throat> immaturities and your weaknesses. Wow. Um, and the reason why you look for that is because wow. by doing that, you pass that down to your to your children and your children's children. Not like a direct, you know, cause just in case someone got lost in that gigantic stream of, you know, verbal vomit I just threw up on the microphone. That was, uh, that was beautiful. Uh, beautiful. In case you got lost, what I'm not saying... It makes that, so much sense to me, though. I mean, yeah. it does. It, like, literally... I, you couldn't have put it better like in in, my, in terms of like the way that I think about that that is so true like you don't think about that when you're looking for a partner say you know but the, the person that I have become throughout the time of my relationship with my kids as mother has I believe be, I have become close to the best version of myself that I could possibly be virtuous like like seriously like I don't lie no more. I like, I mean, I might fib and shit, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like I, yeah. I aim like Jordan Peterson says, I aim in the highest possible direction of good. And I just, and that's the way that I, I had my life now. Like I, I try to, I try to live right. So yeah, that's funny that, that, that's how it's turned out, you know, because if you look at it for what it is, me and her, our relationship in general, it's been pain. It's been struggle. It's been misery. You know, there's been a lot of downs and but in return like i have done nothing but rise you know so that's funny that you put it that way yeah i mean that's i really think you know that's i think probably why you're sitting here in this chair for the same kind of reason because you'll do that with your um let's say the relationship you have with your 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 wife or your husband or whoever you know happens to be listening but you have that with your friends too and you'll find that the friends that you get along with too easily are usually the friends that will drag you down into hell slowly through uh, through entropy. Mm. Um, so if I, when I throw the word entropy out there, because I didn't realize it because I, I sit here in my, as a hermit in my little library and, and sit and read and write all day and get disconnected from society and turn into <laughs> Zarathustra up on the mountain talking to my imaginary snake and eagle. Um, but, but no... Uh, I didn't realize like I might throw that word entropy around and people not, aren't familiar with it. So when I use that word, you know what I mean? Entropy? I do not. Okay, good. Because that gives me an excellent chance to explain it. So um, this is actually a, a dynamic and I think it's thermodynamics. Uh, you'll learn it in a chemistry course. I think you'll probably also learn it in a physics course. But it is the tendency for energy to become homogenous within a closed system. Well, what the hell does that mean, right? Because it's throwing a bunch of words. So a closed system is uh, a set of circumstances that doesn't have any energy or matter coming in or out, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine if I had like a closed off aquarium, right? So everything within the aquarium is that system. The surroundings are everything outside the aquarium. The glass is keeping anything from coming in or out. And let's say the glass, let's say it's not even glass. Let's say it's some material that no light or heat can pass through is magic right because I, I need my example to work okay so stagnant uh, yes a stagnant system now if you have that system over time um as the the energy disperses itself i think of that as like um heat energy um let's say vibrations from sound uh you're going to have potent, potential energy locked up in chemical bonds um so you know those chemicals are going to decay over time as they do if you're familiar with the concept of half-life it's how long it takes the uh, atomic structure or something to decay down. Over time, if you just keep waiting, 
the uh, essentially the energy and thereby the matter in that system will slowly become evenly distributed until everything is an undifferentiated gray blob, right? It's why things break down. It's just a tendency for, um, you know, things to go to the path of least resistance. That's a nice way to think about it, right? Like water just runs along with, you know, the, by the force of gravity. It's not trying to fight it until it hits the lowest point and then it's equilibrium and it's just flat distributed, right? So that's entropy. Um, now that's in a closed system where no matter, no other energy is coming in. Obviously, we don't live in closed systems because, like, there we have a sun that's radiating the Earth. The Earth is spinning. There's like things coming in and hitting it. Each system on the Earth is being influenced by other things. Like, so we we don't live in a closed system. Um, but it's useful to understand the concept because if you do nothing, you are in an entropic state. I'll say that again. So if you do by doing nothing, so taking inaction, you are, uh, no matter what, who you are, where you are, you are depreciating, you're rotting, right? You're decaying, you're becoming less. It requires effort just to maintain. We have a word for that, right? Maintenance, just to keep something about where it was. And then it takes even more effort for something than to build. That's super important um, if you have any like young listeners. Hope, uh, I don't know if I hope I have young listeners or not, right? That might not be good. But it's super important for people to realize that um, actually to stay where you are requires effort and to move forward requires Herculean levels of effort, right? Um, and how did we get here in the conversation? Well, we got here because the people around you who oftentimes are difficult to be around are the people oftentimes that you ought to be around like the people who are hmm. going to challenge you um wow or if they don't directly challenge you what i found is like look for people who make you feel envious right and then convert that or if i like to be fancy transmute that into admiration right so if you're around somebody um and you you're thinking like oh i wish i had they had it's like good now copy something about that person take the negative emotion and that's the dog behind you. Mm. And then the thing that they have is the golden apple. I'll try to do a golden apple because I think in mythology, that's always like an object of chaos. Uh, whatever fruit you prefer, right? Well, Put that in front of you uh, and let that drive you forward into the future uh, to become who you you know could become. And like, obviously, there's some pain associated because you're now being chased by a dog. Right. And maybe that's bad because you have something nipping at your heels. But maybe you need something nipping at your heels, you know? Sure. Um, yeah, and I think that's why you might find, we all find ourselves um, in contentious, contentious is the right word, relationships that are, uh, let's say, worthwhile overcoming. And we should always oppose those with uh, friendships and relationships that are easy to stay in. and But they just, they suck the motivation dry from you well, that's my that's the end of that little ramble and i like what it. what you have to say about that i like that that's 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 lovely well clearly yeah. um you know we don't see people doing that very often though do we no no not at all no. not in this society today because comfortable is uh it's what we aim for right being comfortable like that's that's like the goal like you work so hard to become comfortable and then once you're there, you know, then what? You just 
like you say, anthrop. What's that? Oh, um, I big word for word. me. No, 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 it's uh, anthropomorphic. I keep thinking enthalpy, but entropy. There you go. Entropy. entropy. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're doing nothing. So in reality, you're really going backwards because if you're not going forward, like you say, building that takes that herculean effort to you know get to that point because it it does it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of uh, motivation it kind of sucks when you're going through it you know but um i think once you embrace that struggle a little bit um it it definitely becomes maybe easier if you if that's the word you want to use i I don't even know like because easy isn't something that i like anymore like i that challenge is what I, i look for now like i want that challenge i I really, I really enjoy the struggle now. Like I've uh, become uh, a fan of suffering in a way, I guess you could say like it uh, makes me feel alive, I guess. Uh, I really, uh, I like the struggle now. Whereas before, like, you know, I stubbed my toe. I mean, just for like, like instance, like I stubbed my toe, that pain. I remember being a young kid and like stubbing my toe or like hurting my elbow and being like, wow, like I never want to do that again. Like that, that sucks, you know? And like how far I've grown as a person now to where like, I don't mind stubbing my toe. I don't mind hurting my elbow. Like I, I really enjoy the struggle. So that's it's kind of, kind of funny how that works. You know, when you embrace it a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I told this to uh, my buddy Josh, who has been on the podcast a few times, quite a few mm-hmm. times, um, and I, I played around with that idea that uh, it's in the preface of Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. Uh, he starts out saying, uh, "Supposing truth were a woman, what then?" Right. And I, I really like it. Of course, it's funny one. Because I burst out laughing the first time I read it. But I, I really thought about that. OK, so like this is a bit of a male centric perspective, but put up with it. Uh, you know, listeners, uh, philosophers, like it's probably all making men listening. Um, <laughs> well, if it's on YouTube, but which it is. <laughs> but anyway, supposing truth. Will, what does Nietzsche mean by truth in that instance? He's really talking about like objective reality. That is which is that because that is what is true and is in fact that is what is really real and i thought about it this way that uh, when you get the proper perspective and you understand that reality is like very much like a woman now what is a woman like well a woman often wants to love you but in order to love you you have to be worthy and in order to be worthy you have to be willing like to put up with uh not only the world and all its hardships but also like her right because she's going to have a bunch of uh burdens that you're now going to need to take responsibility for if we think of this in a very traditional way you could just think of like children right like you get a wife then you have kids and now you have to maintain this house and these kids and then also yourself so that your wife still likes you um and like there's it's, it's a bunch of work for sure but if you think of reality right now we're talking about a metaphor for existence itself is like the woman that wants to love you if only you're worthy and she wants you to be worthy because she's the beneficiary. And then once you make yourself worthy of love by the universe or if religious, let's say, love love by God, um, then she'll accept you in a uh, warm embrace and you'll come to see the universe. You'll come to see life itself and all of its sufferings and all the duties and obligations and pains and burdens it places upon you as a thing that is welcoming as a thing that is warming and loving uh and you you know we do what the greek stoics often tell us to do and to be honest the ancient chinese tell us to do the same thing uh and the india the buddhist indians um is that you move your aversions and your desires things you want and want to avoid in accord with 
how the universe is. So it's no longer, I want it to be this way, therefore the universe should change for me. It's, I have molded myself in accord with the will of the universe, if you want to say it that way, and thereby come to be loved by the universe and able to love the universe back. Mm. Right? Mm. So, uh, I don't know, I've, I've found that to be an incredibly helpful metaphor. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it a, a nah, it's not really an analogy uh, or allegory either. It's not an allegory because it's not a story, but let's call it a metaphor. And it's been very useful for me to find perspective in what it means to, say, stub your toe. Because once you have that perspective and you stub your toe and it's like, well, like, what does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? Like, right. I've suffered this small amount of pain. It's like, okay, like that, that too is a part of life. Am I going to now cut off my toes so that I never have to stub my toes again or like throw all my tables out of the window? No, like having toes and having uh, tables and chairs also require, if I love having those things, I also must love stubbing my toe. Right. Right. Because you can't get, uh, can't really get one without the other. Right. But, you know, uh, now you obviously are sitting here smiling at me as I'm, I'm giving you this explanation. I find most people don't, they don't really like to hear what I just had to say. What's been your experience trying to explain to somebody the new perspective that you, you have on suffering? Um, I guess that when you voluntarily accept it, when you voluntarily accept that life is suffering in so many ways, there's no way around it really. So, and like, instead of fighting it, which I did for a long time, blame God, blame him, her, everybody. Cause you know, myself was perfect. Right. Um, once I got so much, let's say, I don't know if I was ready for it, but like once I started piling on the uh, the responsibilities of kids, the clothes, the dishes, the the struggle of just you know raising four kids, you know, like once I took that all into perspective and realized that like there's no way around this other than running, like I can turn, run, have a good life, you know, but that just wasn't in me. So like I guess what stopped you, man? What stopped me from that's funny, right? That's funny. I, I don't know. I can't I can't even begin to tell you what it was that made me stay because I knew what it was. I knew right then and there that it was not going to be fun, right? Like it because like it in order to be a good father, a good role model, anything, a good husband, like part of you has to die, right? Like it has to die because you're selfish, your ego, your pride, you know. That's what gets you to that point anyway. You know, look how look how awesome I am. You know, that's how you end up mating, I suppose. You know, like you got this persona like, you know, you're you're the best. So. So there's some battle. There had to be some battle with yourself at some point. Because oh, right? like because there was the self that wanted to run. And then there was part of you who, that didn't. What was that for you? What was that like? Like what? Because I know you said it happened. Like there was just a moment where you had to you had to decide. Right. It was like kill or be killed and who was going to win, who was going to live the higher or lower self. Like, can you remember? Because it might have just. I, th I mean, I think I still struggle with it sometimes. Right. Like, I think it's still in me a little bit, you know, like. Uh, but 
I think when I fully accepted, like, like when I found that there was a little bit of hope in that, I think it was uh, by my by my last daughter, my last baby that I had, uh, MJ, like when she said she was pregnant with her, I was like, you know, I, at, at this point I started like, uh, putting a lot of, uh, investment into myself. You know, I started like really, uh, you know, digging into some things like, uh, psychology, philosophy, uh, God, everything, you know, like, what are we, uh, and I started like, you know, investing in myself a little bit. I started uh, getting into crypto and the, the stock market and just like the, the economy, just everything. I found that, that, that love for life again, you know, cause uh, like when I, when I was growing up, I, I was constantly into sports and uh, my mom, you know, kind of pushed me in that direction. Like, uh, you know, I guess I was uh, really, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, I wanted to make people happy. Right. So like I did a lot of things, not for myself, but for others. Right. So, uh, like, I think when I started actually like caring about me and what I wanted to be was about that time. Like I'm 33 now. So I, I say I didn't really honestly take that step till I was like 30, like fully at 31, like fully embrace that I'm a man. It's time to move. It's time to grow up. You know, it, like it took a long time to get that. Like, uh, so like I said, when MJ was born or like, I found out that she was going to be born uh that little girl it was kind of like uh i kind of had hope in my life again like i was empty for a long time like my 20s i was a drug addict like no other way to put it like i was addicted to drugs like and then through it all um you know i've seen people die i've you know been broke been just despaired the lowest point you could possibly go like you don't think you can go any lower but there's always another level down there that you're going to reach because like, that's what it is. Whenever you give up, like, that's essentially what it was is I give up. And, uh, once I started pulling myself out slowly of that pit and, and like really, you know, embracing it, like, uh, it's like 30 years old, man, 30, at least I'm 33 now be 34 here in November. So, uh, I guess once I started investing myself a little bit, uh, you know, believing in myself a little bit, you know, it took 10, it was 10 years of despair though, for real, like 10 years of failing every day that I woke up, no hope. So like, how do you go from that point to this point And then, you know, build off that, you know, what, what, like, I don't know what day it was. Right. But it started with a thought no, like, cause I fought that my whole life, like my twenties, my whole twenties, I fought that being an, that, that feeling of being an addict of using, you know, like every day you wake up having to get high just to, just to dull the, the memories and, and then like, you know, that, that sense of life that you just, I, I don't know what it, what it was about that, that I just couldn't accept. Right. Like I couldn't accept the good, the bad, the anything. Like I had to doll all that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny to be here now though. It is, it's like, it's refreshing. It's enlightening. And like I said, I have hope again, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm alive to say. Yeah. Tell me if this makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to dig at something that I, I've never seen anyone be able to articulate exactly and because i think it's something that's so um it, it by nature evanescent but there seemed to be a moment that wasn't exactly a rock bottom because uh, yeah, i have a, i just actually recently a week ago i think or maybe it was two weeks ago finished the na basic text um that my josh went to me um and you know, really through all these anecdotes and everyone kind of talks about hitting quote unquote their rock bottom. But what you said to me 
was different because you didn't say you hit a rock bottom. You said that at around about the same time you discovered the, let's say, or rediscovered the responsibility of being a father yet again because you're going to have another kid born. So that's like, um, you know, if you think of like cycles of uh, rebirth each with each new child coming into the world that is like a new soul for which you are responsible and you have an opportunity each time that happens to decide what you're going to do in regard to that kid but at the same time you said you discovered that there is no bottom so it's not that you and tell me if you think this is wrong but for what i what i heard it was that not that you hit rock bottom but that you discovered that the the that because there is no bottom that you could keep going down and that realization that Ella you would call it an elevation of consciousness a sudden dawning realization about the uh fundamental reality of of your existence that actually hell is a bottomless pit mm. bottomless you will keep going mm. um it sounds to me that that made you realize that you that no amount of running or or uh, self-narcoticizing was going to protect you because you're going to keep going down to deeper, darker, hotter flames. For sure. And that, and almost like that realization of, if I don't want this to continue to get worse, I have to go back up. Right. Was that? Does that sound? Yeah, for sure. Does that sound? Yeah, that, that's that's spot on. Spot on. Yeah, and I understand taking ten years, man. Like I struggled with depression for all of my all of my twenties, all of it, the whole thing. And it's funny to me because, like, my life is rel relatively easy. Like, it's, you know, you hear that with celebrities, especially because they have, like, a lot of money, a lot of fame and status. And then they'll kind of come out and try and talk about their depression. Everyone's like, your life is so easy. Um, but I think the reality is that our social status and material possessions are actually not very relevant to our... Uh, let's say psychological and spiritual well-being. Like Breach, yeah. Breach. They're, they're totally separate, and it, and really the deepest, let's say, most important uh, question involved with human suffering and despair is: Can you accept life as it is? Right. Um, and if that question doesn't matter how wealthy or comfortable you are. In fact, there's a lot of argument: the more comfortable you are the worse it is, mm. um, the less you're able to accept, let's say, the uh, limitations, constraints, and laws of reality itself. Mm. But yeah, you think that well, it was that realization that hell is a bottomless pit, that there is no rock bottom, and there's no, like, almost like even death is not an escape. Like, in you know, maybe it is, but like, let's just say it's not, right? Like, even that's like, okay, there's no escape. Like, what I'm doing is not escaping. So that that's kind of how what clicked for you at that moment. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like being empty. All like you know, you got a cup here that's just empty, and mm -hmm. like it just keeps getting like lonelier and like darker and like it's like there's something in you that tells you like you know I don't know what it is, but for me anyway, I can speak for myself that like you want to do right, you want to do good, you know, and when you're constantly taken away from what you think you should be like you just become uh just this empty vessel you're just alive like you're but you're not really alive you know um I, but like what i discovered was is you just 
like you say, if you're not going forwards, you know, you're going backwards. So like every day just got a little lonelier, a little darker, a little dimmer. And I, I mean, how long could you go that, that long? Like how long could you go with that feeling of like, you know, you're doing everything wrong, you know? It's just, uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's like when you're living it, it's hell, pure hell, right? Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know how long, like, I've seen addicts go their whole life doing it, though, you know? So, like, I've seen it personally, like, you can continue down that, because there's almost something comforting in it, too, right? Like, there's almost like that, like, I heard someone explain this to me, uh, when knowing someone's pissed off at them helps them sleep a little better at night, keeps them warm. Like I've heard someone say that before and it like clicked with me. I'm like, yeah, I could see, I could see what you mean. There's something to that, right? Like there's something to like people being pissed at you, like maybe makes you feel important or like, you know, like uh, you're living in their head rent free. Like, you, you know, there's something there to that. I, I just don't know what it is exactly. You know, yeah, that, um, that is the will to revenge. So um, Nietzsche talks a lot about this. We have a will to power. What does that mean? Because oftentimes people think like will to power being like a tyrannical authoritarian like asshole. That's not what power means. Power is your ability to manifest your will in the world, right? So I have a desire. If I can manifest that desire into the world, then I have the I have that power, right? Pretty simple definition, and it's actually kind of innocuous. Like if I have a will to power to make a good cup of coffee and I can do it, then I fulfill my will to power by making a cup of coffee in the morning. Right. As simple as that. Well, Nietzsche describes, particularly in the genealogy of morals, that when you are weak, that you, the weaker you are, the less you're capable of fulfilling that will to power. Mm. And what it does is it turns you against being itself. Mm. Because you keep looking at the your own limitations, and then like you described earlier, projecting them as everything else's fault, right? You keep looking at like victim, yeah. You become the the victim, and then that makes it it's a you feel justified in right. taking revenge, and there's a pleasure in taking revenge because you feel as though you're now like an agent of justice, bringing about. Um, at least some amount of your will. Like if I can cause somebody else suffering, then I can at least fulfill that, right? And it feels good. Right. Um, and, you know, why Why do we have, I, th I actually have an explanation as to, I think, why we have that instinctively because it's, it's in us, it's in every human being, right? Um, I even named the last podcast I talked with Josh uh, that was the spirit of Cain because that is Cain's fundamental driving uh let's say, animal, right? It is his desire to take vengeance against God so he kills his brother in the fields uh, because he doesn't want to live up to the fact that his sacrifices were inadequate in the face of God, right? So we all have that spirit of Cain, um, but we also all have that kind of union God image. And we kind of, you know, we see what happens when people don't, fulfill that uh that god image is that they this is getting a little perhaps biblical about it they pass down their sins to uh their descendants right in the same way if you look at like the garden of eden story you've got the sins of adam and eve they get passed down to their descendants um and we do the same thing right like when we fail to live up to our um what's the best way to describe it when we fail to live up to our potential, the degree to which we fail to live up to that potential 
uh, our own children are now cursed with overcoming the hurdles that we failed to overcome, right? So like for me, we didn't have a dad, just wasn't around. He was in prison, uh, mainly because he was like a uh, delinquent, right? So st- st- statistically speaking, you know, the odds that you're here sitting now, you know, even aiming in a, a direction of good was like very low, right? Yeah, relatively, relatively low. And there's lots of members of my family who failed in that regard. Um, lots of other people in a similar situation who have failed. And actually, the only reason I didn't fail is because uh, I got involved in martial arts as a young teenager. Um, and for those of you who don't know, um, the, uh, this is the Cantonese pronunciation, uh, Sifu, uh, is the character used to spell that is the combination of the word teacher and father, right? So I had a surrogate father figure, and in a way, kind of multiple surrogate father figures, and discipline that you get from, let's say, your father embedded in me to bring me up out of the situation of having a, uh, what's called, you'll know, the devouring mother, right? The mother that makes your life so easy that you're this weak, frail being, and then that makes you like Cain, where your sacrifices are always inadequate, and you blame other people. Um, mm. That's what saved me, basically. Otherwise, I would have been screwed. Um, wow. But that kind of harkens back to the very beginning of our conversation, because we look around and we see the degeneracy of um, all forms of relationships, but that now we're talking at the level of the family, right? So, you know, someone goes their whole life allowing themselves to, um, you know, uh, entropy, uh, yeah, entropy, allowing themselves to decay and sink further and further into hell. And what that means is that the, uh, the maw, the mouth of hell will gape open a little bit wider, a little bit wider. And then, you know, some of their kids will fall in. Mm. And then eventually what happens is some of somebody else's kids start to fall. Mm. You see what I mean? Mm. And then all of a sudden you look outside and then it makes sense. It makes <laughs> sense now, right? It does make Cause, sense. Because um, I don't know if you had uh, had a dad when you were growing up around. Yeah, I did. Did? Oh, that's Yes, crazy. I did. I did have a father. And I mean, even to this day, like he's, I love my dad to death, but he had demons too. You know, like he, even to this day, struggles with, you know, alcohol. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of nights that I laid in bed waiting to hear that truck pull up the driveway, like, oh, fuck, here we go, you know, fucking, but I, I think that's like that thing you're talking about, that generational curse that like got passed on, right? That, and I think I had a little taste of it too with my, the demon I was beating off my back too, but like, I don't know, for now it's at bay, but yeah. Well, yeah. And look, and you can even use your, your own example if you want to, right? Like, um, juxtapose or compare yourself now compared to had you decided not to um, try to get clean, right? And then uh, now push that forward 20 years. What what influence, what impact is that going to have on your own kids, right? Like, obviously, it's better <laughs> to get clean, right, than it is. Yeah. And so you can, and but you can kind of see, like, uh, a demon was passed down to you, right? And that demon maybe that demon even festered in you to become a bigger demon than it was. Like maybe it wasn't even as bad in your father, but like father. if it's just once it's passed down to you, it's like, it's going to grow. Right. Like if you leave it alone, it, it decays. Like, a you know, if you take a rotten piece of food and you leave it there, it's not going to get less covered with bacteria. Mm. <laughs> it gets, it gets worse. Uh, right. It's it sure. more covered in parasites. Um, and then it becomes, in a sense, sometimes more and more difficult for one to expunge it. But then you can, through great 
let's say great self-sacrifice, right? This is kind of Jordan Peterson when he says like bear your cross, you know, drag it all the way to the top of the mm. hill. Um, Nietzsche in his uh, last book before he went mad, um, he calls it the Antichrist. What? Why did he get mad? Syphilis, right? Some people think it was syphilis. Some people think he was faking, faking it because they would go and like, you could sometimes visit him in the asylum and have like a total normal conversation. Huh. And you come back before, and then he was like bedridden. And sometimes you'd go insane and play like the piano like a madman and start dancing. Like, who knows? Um, yeah, it, it had a crazy end of his life. Um, huh. How old was he? Uh, I think he was in his early 40s, something out of that age. Wow. Yeah. Um, but with, um, where was I? Uh, so we're talking about demons and then uh, being able, oh, with uh, the Antichrist, right? He calls the book the Antichrist, but like halfway through the book, he stops and says, well, you know, is there anything that we can take from the uh, the art, narrative archetype of, he doesn't use those words, but of the, of the Redeemer? And then he basically goes into interpreta- interpreting um, the Christ story in the exact same way that Jordan Peterson does, which tells me that Jordan read uh, Nietzsche's interpretation and should be giving him a little bit more credit because it's like, Jordan, you got this exactly from Nietzsche. Right. What Nietzsche says, though, is what makes what actually makes Jesus Christ a proper redeemer figure is that he, despite being unfairly persecuted, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right. So it's like I'm looking at the unfair mm-hmm. treatment of the universe and I'm not going to blame you, God. I'm not going to blame all these people. Um, I have the attitude that redeems the attitude that redeems that which embraces the fact that terrible evil must exist in the universe for the universe to be its for being to be itself. And that is the uh, that's the proper uh, redeemer archetype. It's not a scapegoat that died for your sins. It's it is the emulation of the attitude that you will let's say forgive uh, the trespasses against you because otherwise you will become resentful and bring the world to destruction of some stupid sense of self righteous justice. Mm. Right. We all go through that though, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all go through that. That's a real thing. Yeah, and you mentioned before that, um, you know, the monkey never really totally climbs off your back. No. Like, you just, you, instead, you repeatedly face up against it again and again and again, right? It's it manifests not, in other ways. It's just there, right? Yes, it is. Uh, and you talked about, you and Carl, you talked about it that way as well, that this is not, you don't reach com- uh, completion. You don't reach perfection. You move toward it. Um, and for that, I really like to think in terms of the Taoist, right? Because Tao means way, path, or road, right? So the goal of Taoism is not to reach the destination. It is to keep yourself on the road, hmm. to keep yourself on the journey. You're, the whole point is a continuous process. That There's no concept of an end, right? It's, it's merely you hold to the road and you try to stay on it as it twists and bends and it's like a river. It's never the same, you know, a river's never the same twice because it uh, not only is the water flowing, but over time, the course of the river changes with the erosion. Um, Path of least resistance, right? Like water's always going to go to its lowest point, huh? Yes. Uh, and in a sense, the, what they think in Taoism is we need to be like water. 
and you need to be willing to go to your lowest point or really look at yourself at your lowest point. I love that. And that's where you reach equilibrium. And then from a place of balance, from a place of equilibrium, only then are you steady enough to be able to reach up and let's say push off, push off from where you are, right? Because if you're off balance, when you try to carry a load, you fall over. And so you have to go to your lowest point. You have to be willing to mm. see yourself as you truly are. And then from there, your feet are sturdy enough on the earth that you can hold up the the weight of the sky. There's some mythological significance to that. We don't have to dig that far because um, it's been a while since I've read uh, Joseph Campbell and I, I'm not that well-versed. So. But like, how did the, like mythology, like how did it have such a good understanding like if you is it just the way that we see it and interpret it that makes it you know appeal to us or like was there really like like the people before us like they they understood things like that you know like what is what is that so um i just listened to a podcast about the pre pre-socratic philosophers so the philosophers before socrates and before that you have the homeric so like uh like the the poet Homer, like the guy who did, uh, the, told the Odyssey, right? Heard. And so that's we're getting into Greek mythology. Now, what you understand, you know, we even understand this if you start reading um, like Plato's Republic. I believe that's where I'm remembering this from. The way that people thought before um, the development of the idea of the Logos, which Jordan likes to talk about the Logos a lot, particularly in the Christian sense. What is the Logos? So to keep it really basic, the Logos essentially is like that which is logical um so how best to how best to say this logic is that which follows right um it is that which is coherent with itself um as opposed to that which is chaotic now before you have that what you have is a mythological or narrative understanding of the world. Now, what is a narrative or mythological understanding? Well, we have a set of instincts that, let's say, are patterned to make us survive in the world. Because again, the whole you know line of ancestors that lived or didn't live. And that line of instincts um, operate under what Yoon called the, like uh, essentially the projection-making mechanism, I think is what he called it, uh, roughly translated, because he wrote in German. But um, what, what that means is that we as biological entities have a biological, uh, let's say, pattern recognition. I can't call it a machine. You can think of it like language. Like babies are primed to learn language. They have parts of their brains that are looking or looking for sounds to mimic and then to form language, right? It's incredible. Yeah, that's why that's why humans do it, and a bunch of other animals don't. It's right? incredible. So it truly is. Now you still need to interact with the world. You still need to hear the language as a baby to learn it. But you have to have the biological structure already there that's ready to look for language-like things. Now, in terms of mythology, it's the exact same thing. We have structures in our body and our brain that are primed to detect things that match certain patterns. And then what we do is we um, we take that projection and we overlay it onto the thing itself. So we, we see reality and then our instincts say, it's kind of like X, Y, and Z. So it's like, um, 
you know, the objective universe is kind of like a judgmental father that's all powerful and always watching everything you do. Hmm. Right? And that was like if you if you got to watch the debates between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson forever ago, that was what Jordan was trying to explain to Sam, right? Like at one 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 of them, like what is God? God is like like if God's the objective universe, and the objective universe is like uh, a judgmental father, and he is watching you all the time because you can't escape the objective universe mm. because it's it's what's real, and it does judge you, like it does punish you when you transgress it like if the wall is there it does not matter if you think the wall is there you run fucking into the wall and it stops you Facts. um right so that's reality yeah and so when we think of mythology it's the same thing we're like okay like it's it's sort of like apollo pulls the sun i'm pretty sure it's apollo who pulls the sun across the sky right now maybe there isn't a dude in a chariot literally pulling the sun across the sky but that's not important I now, with that mythological understanding, I understand that uh, the sun, according to me, and a you know human being living in, living in like ancient Greece, I've got this understanding. Oh, look at that! We're professional on this podcast. <laughs> um, sit down for a second. So we have an understanding that the sun comes across the sky. Now, maybe, you know, scientifically minded modern people are going to scoff at that, but like, let's look at something more behavioral, right? So let's say, um, how is it that you should interact with the generations that come before you? And Jordan loves this one. Well, maybe you need to be like Horace, right? So when the institutions around you that would be like Osiris the king become tyrannical and blind and then their evil brothers take over. So then the institutions become corrupted. Um, maybe the goal is to reconstruct the pieces of your father and then give him one of your eyes. That's your vision mm -hmm. so that he can now that, that so that the institution can now function properly. Right. As opposed to having this revolutionary idea where, um, okay, well, the institution becomes corrupt. Therefore, we just need to decimate it and then try to reconstruct it from scratch with no with no bearing to what worked before. Because you know, like, how well that's going to work. Like, the universe is so freaking complicated. Like, you think you're going to be able to just build a social structure and it's just going to operate? Like, no, it didn't even, like, the, uh, the reason why the American Revolution worked and the French Revolution was a disaster that they had to reform their government, I don't know how many times, and just butchered multitudes of people it's because what the americans did is say okay let's look at like athens and let's look at rome and we'll take our english common law so all the stuff that they had come from before and things they had known about before where did they go wrong what worked let's see if we can piece together what worked and then so even though you had a revolutionary foundation for a country based on um let's say the liberal enlightenment so a particular ideology it still had the component parts of the tradition, even though it was animated by a new spirit. That's the eye of Horus given to Osiris. So then all of a sudden you see the myth, the story about Horus and Osiris and Set and Isis, uh, or Egyptian mythology in this case, is telling people something true about mm. the universe. And I took that all from Jordan, by the way. Like, I, didn't, I like it. I, I'm, I'm totally ignorant of uh, Egyptian mythology right outside of that. So you tell, ask me another question about it. I can't tell you. I got the visual. You yeah. know? Yeah. So you get the, for those of you who haven't heard that set of stories before or ha have not had it explained in that way, that's what mythology is doing. And by the way, that's um, 
that's true for all stories. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a very short tangent because I wanna uh, sell myself again. So uh, I mentioned before at the beginning of this, I'm going to be uh, essentially doing like style guided editing, but I'm also going to be working particularly with theme. Theme uh, comes from the same root. In fact, I think it's an earlier root to the word thesis. The thesis is an argument or claim about like what, how reality is. So every story is a narrative or story-based argument. And the argument made depends on how the story concludes itself, right? So in that story, you know, when when your father becomes blind and corrupt and murdered and ripped to pieces by his evil brother, right? When and, Or in metaphor, when the institutions become corrupt, the way to restore order is through to reconstruct the old order with new vision, right? So that's the argument being made by the story, but that's true for every single story. Uh, and one thing I want to be able to help people to do here soon, and I'll stop shilling myself, um, is to be able to help people understand that when they're writing a story, it doesn't matter if you're trying to do this. The conclusion, the way your story concludes based on the uh, center of conflict, which is really the, the problem that you're trying to solve. If you're writing a good story, by the way, I took this again from Jordan, but um, he, he talks about it with like an essay. I think it's true if you're writing fiction as well. Uh, a good story, a real piece of literary art, is that the center of conflict contains a problem that you yourself want to find an answer to that you don't already have when you go to start to write, which means I don't know how this is actually going to end. You have to be willing to take that risk as an author, right? And then if you can maybe think about this away from fiction with your own life if you want, but you have to know, I don't know how this is going to end. Here's the problem, and here's the situations leading up to that. And now I had to, in the midst of constructing the problem, in the case of writing, figure out how the characters are perhaps me, uh, how I am going to solve this issue. And then that is how you actually find a real resolution, how you write a real story that has an argument that's valid because it wasn't contrived. You didn't start with the conclusion and then work your way backwards, right? You actually needed to figure it out and you put your whole heart and effort into it. And that's one of the services I want to be able to offer people when they're writing their own fiction. It's not just to write well and have very elegant prose, because I do want to bring that back, because I think modern minimalism has eviscerated that, and everyone writes in the same generica. But I want people to write things that are meaningful to them, that when someone reads it, that they, let's say, learn the lessons that the author learned through the process of constructing the story and living their their lives so that they don't have to suffer the same consequences stumbling blind in the dark themselves. Mm. So mm. I like that. I, I like I like that that I, that idea like how you start something without really knowing the end, you know, but like you're you're taking that chance like you say, you know, uh just like for me, it popped in my mind. I'm actually, uh, I took a couple classes. At, um, well, it wasn't with classes. It was a test I had to pass, right? And I've not done that in years. So uh, I had to read a book, retain the knowledge, and then pass the test. So in order to get my business license, which is, you asked if I had anything to show. I didn't think of it at the time. But earnest excavation and concrete is what I'm building. That's my baby right now. Like that's. That was my chance, my vision. I'm taking a gamble, right? Like, do I know where it's gone? No, but I know where I want to start. I know where I'm at. So, like, 
that's that's it. So I took I took a test, I passed it, took another test, passed it. So I had to take business and law, and then I had to take the excavation part. So now through the state of West Virginia, I'm a legal business entity. I'm I'm able to I just I imprinted the energy on March 28th, which the number 28 signifies wealth. So I had to do it that day, right? <laughs> and uh, I got it back. It was March 3rd, I think it was. So, which is real funny because I added everything up because I've been doing this lately with numerology, right? Like it's in me now. So it all equaled out to nine. I'm a life path nine, which is crazy. And then again, I got my business ID back which the numbers added up to nine, which I thought was, uh, is it a coincidence? You know, like, it's just funny how that all come about. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I took a chance and now I'm, you know, wanting to start something, you know, I want to, I want to build something. So I can relate that to what you're saying. I like, I really like that. Well, that's awesome, man. And it's Ernest uh, Excavation and Concrete. LLC. LLC. All right. So you heard it here, folks. You heard it in uh, in and around the tri-state area, Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, and you are needing some excavation or car concrete earnest excavation and concrete brought or well you're sponsoring us i said that in the wrong order um <laughs> but no that's that's really awesome man. and that was real slick bringing around the, the numerology again i wasn't i wasn't expecting that one but yeah it's you know you do find all these coincidences um i can be a bit romantic about it at times um when you are when you have the faith in life that things that whatever is going to happen is what is good, right? So it's like, okay, uh, tell me if you have this, because I get this. And I've had some people really, in my personal life, balk at this, like respond really negatively to this attitude. But I, I've had it for a while um, where, let's say if I ask for a letter of recommendation uh, for somewhere, I won't open it and read it. I won't I won't know what the person said about me, and I'll hand it off to Why? somebody. Because... My thought is, if this person I ask to do this said something bad about me, then mm. I don't deserve the job, right? Like, whatever, mm. you know, I can't know, right, what someone else really thinks. I can't dictate that. It's, it's dishonest of me. I can't manipulate the universe in that way, right? Do, do you feel embarrassed? Is that, like, the feeling you get when you, like, say you hand that letter off? Do you feel embarrassed to read it? Like, do you get the secondhand embarrassment? Like, I mean, I do, but that's not – I mean, I get that about a lot of things. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, absolutely, I would get that. But, no, it's um, – part of me says, like, no, no, no. Don't be tempted. Don't be tempted to curate, right? Like, um, for instance, you know, if I get a bad review of my book, if I had the option to get rid of it, I wouldn't. And the reason why is because that is going that bad review or a bad letter of recommendation or like the failing of a test or um, the you know ruination of a particular friendship or relationship or the loss of a job. When you have faith, and we'll define that here in a second, because that's something that um, I've tossed back and forth with different people on the podcast and myself. When you have faith, you've already decided that whatever bad quote-unquote bad thing is actually good because that is what ought to have happened the unknown right like, yeah so i've already accepted the unknown before i've encountered it and i actually think that's what faith is because i think the um you know the coming out of the new atheists back in the early 2000s 
the new atheist. So that's uh, yeah, that's like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett. Uh, in particular, I was on YouTube quite a lot, so some people might be familiar with the old YouTube atheists before most of them went insane. What a tool, uh, what a tool. <laughs> yeah, we had like, well, what was it back then? DPR Jones, Thunderfoot, Aaron Raw, um, TJ Kirk, uh, who's also known as the Amazing Atheist, Seth Andrews, and he was a thinking atheist. Tim Coordinates, who's more of a science-based YouTuber, but he hung, hung out with those guys. Um, there are there were others among, among that time um, that... Their names just don't come to mind. Akultama, um, Dark Matter 2525, uh, Non-Stamp Collector. There's tons of these guys. Uh, uh, Atheism is Unstoppable is one, but he came way at the end. The Arm Armored Skeptic, he was again, he was a latecomer. Uh, and he's still around, I think, on YouTube. But anyway, that's like the, the, the background that I come from. And I think since the Enlightenment in like the 18th century, so 1700s and beyond, the idea of faith actually um, was a bit bastardized because I nowadays, if you ask people for a definition to them, faith is like a belief in a thing without just cause in believing that thing. And I do think that a lot of times when people say the word faith, that is what they mean for themselves. But I've thought about it and I actually think like really, I think it's a stupid definition. I think it, that that holds you back. To have that definition and the definition i've come to accept in the correct concept of faith you know because otherwise if you define it that way faith is like gullibility gullibility and stupidity and then then like it's really easy really easy for the atheist to come in and just like shit all over whoever is gonna do that but a real definition is something like an attitude toward uh toward the universe and toward life that it is good and what does that mean? It's like whatever is going to happen is what ought to happen, right? I have affirmed existence. Even if I'm going to suffer terribly, I have faith that that is what is right, right? And the moment that you start doing that, these weird coincidences start happening all the time. Like things things just get better all around you. Like you get better, the people around you get better. Opportunities that were invisible just come out of the ether that you never th could have thought existed. And, you know, part of me thinks they were there the whole time, but because we were without that faith, you're kind of blind in a way, right? Because you're not Absolutely. willing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. I like that. Really do. I do. Yeah. Yeah, because you could just sit there and literally be closed off to all of it, but it's all around you all the time when you put the faith, the effort, you know, it, it does magically appear, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think the mechanism behind that is we are unwilling to see things that are that we judge as essentially being too painful. We want to ignore them. Mm. But when you ahead of time decide, I'm not going to judge those things as negative, I'm going to beforehand accept them, then all of a sudden we become willing to look. And when we become willing to look, then, well, then the opportunities now present themselves. I like that. Yeah, and it's... And I'm, I mean, that at least that's what occurs to me when you, you know, you, you run through the numbers of numerology and it all like lines up for you right as you're, you're, you know, you're opening this new business and like, man, I hope that you reach the highest levels of success Thank you. attainable to you, man. It's, Thank you. Yeah. No, I love, I love hearing anytime anyone is doing anything that is, you know, positive for them, like, 
you know, uh, what is it? Again, Jordan says, like, be careful who you tell good news to. Like, mm, I want to be. I someone, love that. Yeah, I want to be someone that people can tell good news to. So true. So true. Yeah. It is. It is. Like, 90% of the people that you say that to have a secret vendetta, right? They have, like, this, like, willingness to see you fail. Like, they don't want you to do better than them. And like, you have people say it, like, to you, like, when you tell them um, that you're doing this business, they start giving you all these, like, quote-unquote warnings, like, they're trying to look out for you that are super discouraging. Yes. Yeah, just, like, Absolutely. this freaking slow. Oh, make sure you do this. Oh, by the way, you got you to watch out for this. And, like, mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. there, there are people who don't own businesses, usually, right, I assume? 90% of the time, yeah. yeah. You, like, people that do, like, have went down that road, like, they know what the road is. Like, it ain't no easy road. So they, you know, like, I, them are the kind of people that I like to gravitate to and pick their brain, you know, because I want to know what they know. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, people that will never take the, the shot, so to say, they're going to give you all the advice in the world, which is usually terrible advice, yes. Yeah, it's almost like they're trying to uh, sabotage your effort. For sure. Yeah. And I had to learn, you know, over time, like, that particular thing, like, because I just take everybody's opinion and like what they think for face value because like I I think that maybe they have the same like idea that I do, you know, that like I want good for everybody, right? I want people to do the best possible thing. I'm in the camp of like, you know, like I run equipment. So um, my whole career, I've run into guys that like I looked up to, I seen they were good. They could do things I didn't even think was imaginable on that iron robot that they're on, you know, that excavator, that big old piece of iron. And I'm just like blown away by their skills and what they know and how they do it, you know, and, uh, and then people, you know, there's been several that have helped me, but for the most part, they, they don't want you to get to that point. So they're going to cut you down every step of the way, whether it's psychological or like, uh, however they do it, you know, and I don't know if they intend to be that way, but I think inside they don't want you to take their job. So they're literally trying to derail you every step of the way. Cause that's what I, the past, when I was, you know, 20 to 30, I, that's what I did was I run equipment. I, I learned from people in the union, you know, local 132, just right down there in Glendale. That's, that's sort of my profession was pipeline, like really dangerous hanging off hills on winch lines. You know, I was on the ground learning that stuff. So I'd have to like hook up the winch lines and, you know, uh, learn who was safe, who wasn't, you know, uh, not to get under stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, from the people that I admired, I've, I've learned that like, e- like, even like the best of the best, like they don't want you to be anywhere near them and steal their, their, their spotlight. Right. So I got a lot of failure in that, in that line of work, a lot of failure, but like here I am now coming out on the other side, like I'm about to do my own thing, you know, like take all that knowledge that I learned, like you said earlier, um, the people that you learn from ain't the ones that you like 90% of the time. There's always a message in there from the people that you don't necessarily get along with you know and i think that over time i've taken the messages and you know it might have been a net negative at the time but over time it's turned into a net positive you know so i like that a lot you know like like when you meet somebody you might not get along with them you know what i'm saying and then like you automatically have this bias toward them like you don't like them so I don't know what it is there, but it seems like if you can hang around that person long enough and like try to be understanding in the end, it's almost like you become closer to people like that. I've, I've found that out. Like people that I initially don't like at the beginning of a conversation or just in general, over time, by the end of it, 
I become close with people like that. I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know what that is about that. It's weird. Do you find the people that uh, end up trying to keep you from getting to like where they're at? Uh, are those people friendly at the beginning? Some. 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 Yeah. I wanted to know that whether or not there was a tendency for the people who aren't afraid uh, of you, that who aren't afraid of you replacing them, who are willing to give you all of the help that you need. If there was a correlation between those people um, sometimes being the hard to get along with people or if you found those people easier to get along with or or if it's just a mixed bag the whole way through. I, I think it's kind of like that thing of like... Uh, the generational curses that get passed down beyond, you know, generations. I think like that's how they learned was from that generation before them was to treat the people coming up that way, treat them like shit, you know, and like hold them down because like, I don't know what it is about that. Like not everybody's going to make an operator. Not everybody's going to be able to sit in that seat and have the pressure of, you know, hanging off a winch line or, you know, people working under your load and you know, there, there's like a lot of pressure in that and like you watch it for so long, but yeah, I, I don't know what it is about that. Exactly. I, I, I would almost have to guess that that's what they were conditioned to believe from the generation prior, you know, that like, that's how you treat people. And it's just kind of like the theme of it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, it sounds like it, there, there's a bit of a mixed bag. Like sometimes you come in and you might have someone who, um, they they could treat you well and then you know when you when you come up to take their spot they get all threatened or sometimes they could just treat you badly from the start uh, because that's their mode of vetting who deserves to be there right you think like the drill sergeant treats all the soldiers like shit so that when shit hits the fan in the field you can depend on them right and that you might have a guy yeah. like that you work under and he's a, he's a bitch to work under him but by the time you get up there he doesn't hold you back and right. you're ready maybe you might also have someone who keeps you like that, it's almost like the witch in Hansel and Gretel, right? Who who keeps you lazy and happy so that you never have a chance and always has a reason never to give you the chance. Like there's that kind of guy. And then maybe there's a guy who just treats you like shit the whole time and never gives you a chance because he's frightened as soon as you fucking get there. Yep. Um, so yeah, you don't really, never really know. Definitely mixed for sure. Um, this has brought to mind, uh, are you familiar with Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power? I have dabbled a little bit. I've been reading through, I'm about halfway through the book. I, I should be through faster, but then I started reading a bunch of other things and I had this problem where I'll read like five or six books at the same time. That's crazy. It's stupid because I never get through anything. I don't think I've read five or six books in my whole life. You probably read it in your whole life. But, um... I'm a visual learner, bro. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I've always got consumed in books. Like I have, you know, whenever I'm like in it, but like, I don't know what it is. It's like, like work, you know? It it is rough, and particularly everyone's so freaking busy. Like you just have to. If I didn't live this uh, poor hermit lifestyle for so long, I wouldn't have been able to read this much. And also, being in grad school helped because I had to read a whole bunch, and that cost like a hundred thousand dollars, but it was like an excuse. Uh, so it's until I could pay that back someday. Uh, yes. That's one of my my stretch goals. Yeah, don't be don't be a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Good for you though. Well, hey, maybe the banks collapse. They'll do hyperinflation and that like we'll just be taking $100,000 in wheelbarrows to burn to keep warm. I can pay off my debt super easy. <laughs> so what about that? Though? Like that, that interests me, you know, like all this money they're sending to Ukraine. And, oh, you like, wanna, we want to jump there. Like what is monetary it? Thing? I mean, yeah, like seriously, like what is it? Is yeah. it a way of like uh, traffic money like to hide it? Because you know it ain't going all over there, right? Like. Like, how do you become a president and make 250000 a year? And then by the time you're out, like Obama, for instance, is a billionaire. But like, it's like not on the books. It's just known. Like. Yeah. So this is the 
what is it, Michael Malice? You familiar with Michael Malice? I've Anarchist. listened, I've listened yeah, to a so few things. I just listened to him and Lex actually. Recently. Yeah. Oh, I need to listen to him because Lex. Anyone who will calm out like Michael down because Michael gets a little bit giddy by himself. Um, but he points out that it is assumed that all politicians are corrupt, and what people get upset about is when they're depraved, like they're morally depraved. And the reason why is because if you think about what a politician is it doesn't really matter what form of government the politicians are the essentially the gang leaders who hold turf so if you go back it's say you had uh you know you're some village on the plains and like you have you pay tribute to some step horse warlord and what that does is means okay like if i don't pay them they'll they'll kill us but if i do pay them they also ride around and kill anybody else who comes around because if they don't, then they'll other people will rob or kill us, and then they can't rob and kill us. So eventually, you you upscale that, you put on suits, and then you have the government, right? Uh, cool. That that's the reality of it, right? Uh, talked to my buddy Leo Lane for the very first podcast we did, and he was down in Mexico and said like you kind of can't tell the uh, well, you can buy their clothes, but like the cartel and the government are kind of the same like in terms of their function down there. And of course it is because the government is just a different cartel. And the cartel uh, actually happens to be more powerful than the government. Anyway. Really? Uh, Thanks, so? uh Enough that they, the government puts up with them and cooperates with them. I mean, it's because, no secret, right? Yeah, yeah, it's no secret. But so we talk about the money. Well, once we realize that, we realize that all politicians, it, it's just understood that there are going to be these white collar level back, you know, backroom deals, money is going to be changing hands. Um, I, what I think is the bigger deal is the fact that the money itself is all fake. So um, um, now we don't really, I always explain it this way, right? So everything comes down to food. That sounds kind of weird. So I'll explain it. We need to eat to live, right? No matter what, we need to be able to have, have food. And so our money is in a, abstraction of labor there fundamentally the technology is an iou note a medium of exchange yes um we agree that it has value right sort of um so if you have money that's backed let's say if you had money that's backed by rice say for like i don't know this is ancient china uh, the mongols have shown up and they now forced paper currency and essentially they're what that means is you have a note and that note means i can go to let's say the Mong. i think it was the mongols maybe it was the huns Probably the Mongols, because it's in China. But who knows? It doesn't matter. The point is, uh, I go to the Golden Hordes um, rice silo, and I, I hand them a note, and uh, they'll take the note, and then that note gives me so much rice. Now, when I received that note, I let's say I had given them a certain amount of rice. And the reason why you would use the money is that rice rots. You have to store it. It's hard to store. Uh, it's easy to have some hard to duplicate note and just pass those around or coins right oh coins are the, the value can be in the coins themselves right you have actual gold and silver coins which themselves contain the value but even like the paper money even they used in china the same concept right this is easier to deal with yes um and so gold back money works the same way right like okay i've got we all put our we go to the goldsmith he's got a big freaking vault it's hard to steal from we all give them our gold and say okay we're going to write down who has what 
and we'll agree to pay you some small amount for the service of keeping our gold safe. And then he gets out, okay, well, here are all the notes. So you have this much gold, you have this stack of notes. So you, if you come back to me and you hand me the notes, I will go the ledgers. Yep. There, we there go. you go. Um, so that's that's money when it's backed by something. Now, when it's not backed by something, essentially what backs the currency, people don't think about this, but what backs the currency is threat of force by the government. So what the government says is if you don't pay your, your taxes, we're going to arrest you and seize your property. How do you pay your taxes? In, well, no, not your job, your U.S. dollars. They don't give a fuck where you get, fundamentally, they don't care where you get the money from. It's true. Right? But what that means is what backs, it's called fiat currency that they can print at will, is the threat of violence against you. Wow. It's a safeguard against getting thrown in prison. Yes. that That's what backs your money. So Everything is loaned, basically, pretty much. Like, you pay taxes on your house, your property, your cars, everything, right? I yeah, mean, and that's because... They the, say you own it, but really, do you? Uh, technically speaking, you own it in that the, in the Lockean sense that you have the right to it. But uh, in terms of real possession, um, kind of not. Like, because if someone can come and seize it, if you don't pay tribute, it's like you... You never really "quote unquote" own it, it's right? Not, not yeah. So, um, so there there is that. But when we're dealing with, so that that explains the value of fiat currency. It basically means that uh, you don't, you know, you can pay your taxes, uh, so you can maintain your property. So it's a tri it's basically backed by tribute. Now, we can talk about how the money is fake. So I mentioned it's fiat. Basically, meaning they can just at this point type numbers into computers. Now that is sort of like doing magic, right? Because if we if we remember our example when it was backed by gold, if I um, if I fake gold notes, promissory notes, basically, if I fake those, and then all of a sudden it is as if there's more gold in that vault than there is, which is okay so long as we don't need to pull the gold out. But we remember that gold itself, it has value, but fundamentally what that value comes back to is food. Because at the point at which your gold can no longer get you food, the gold no longer has any value. Food always becomes the value because you have to eat. Or like, it could be like, you can think of fresh water, maybe even shelter, kind of. But fundamentally, food and water. If no food and water, you're dead pretty fucking fast. Sure. You can live outside. Be there homeless people. Sure. Right? So what that means is it's not, it's not a matter of, well, we can just pretend there's enough gold and we'll all be okay. It's a matter of as long as we are current, our current production of food is over, what is being expended um, based on the production of fiat currency or the inflation of the currency, we're okay. As long as everyone keeps producing enough enough food. Um, but the moment that doesn't happen and you have to go into your rice silo to get the food that you have stored and there's no food there, now all of a sudden you everything goes from it looks perfectly fine to shit is not fine at all. Because now, at that point, there's not enough food to go around. And fundamentally, with the what they're doing now is they're playing that game where, uh, in modern monetary theory, 
they are pretending that this is merely okay it doesn't matter how much wealth we actually have if we manipulate people's behavior the right way they'll keep producing enough and we'll all be fine now the problem with that that we find out is that's essentially a form of central planning so you've got some bureaucrats who think they can control all of human behavior based on what they what they're doing from the top communism um I would say socialism, because communism is a goofy utopia that they never reach, and it always turns into fascism instead. Um, the Lotus Eaters, if any of our viewers or listeners are familiar, um, always like to say, uh, Carl Benjamin in particular, likes to say that uh, fascism is socialism's final form. Mm. Like, it's like a boss battle in a video game. Mm. Uh, but you can't beat. <laughs> well, we can. We, we did defeat the Nazis and the well, Italians. Um, okay, yeah. But... But it's 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 a bitch, and it took the whole world versus the Germans, basically, right? right? So, yeah. but yeah, it's it's a form of um, social en engineering, and it never works. Um, and the reason why it never works gets really freaking complicated. But essentially, like the question is, uh, we talked about this before: how much should a thing cost? And that is something that is impossible for an individual or a single group to determine. Uh, how we how we calculate it as we let a marketplace kind of debate it out and so like let's say that i want uh i don't know let's say a pen uh costs you're someone's charging a hundred dollars for a pen and if i can take that pen and write a song that then i can use to um i don't know sell to a guitarist the guitarist sings that song and makes money off of that let's say i i i think the pen it's the only pen Let's say, and everyone's you know vying to buy the pen. A lot of people, it's well, I'm willing to pay ten dollars for whatever reasons, but I pay the hundred, and I'm the most. If I'm right about the the actual price of the pen, what ends up happening is that gives a signal to the person who sold the pen, like I need to find a way to either acquire or make more pens because I just made a fucking hundred dollars on this pen, and let's say I can buy a hundred dollars worth of food. It's worth it now for me to go and make more pens because I could sell it for a hundred dollars, and if I'm right about the hundred dollars for the pen um i write the song and i sell it to the guitarist and the guitarist is right about the song okay i buy the song for a thousand dollars and then now i own the song forever so my whole life i can make money every time i go somewhere and pretend there's no radio right just to make this example work and i can play the song and say each show i play earns me a hundred dollars so i play 10 shows i'm now made up for the money i spent on the song and can continue to travel around play my guitar sing the sing the song that i bought off this guy um who and you can see what happened is the guitarist is at the end of that chain who can continuously generate value out of the song the song was generated out of the human value combined with the pen the pen was acquired from some other guy and at each level of exchange the person had to know that they could with what they're spending produce more like i can mix my human labor in with this with this cost of resource and then at the other end generate more value now that requires each individual along that stage to correctly assess their ability to do that and your confidence to do that is determined usually by how much you're willing to spend so if i'm willing to spend more than someone who's willing to spend twenty dollars the person who's spending twenty dollars probably doesn't think that they can produce that level of value with the thing otherwise they would bid more right all, now, sometimes people have buyer's remorse and they make mistakes. 
So there's no perfect system, but that's how the market works to control itself. And let's say that something about the market changes, like let's say that there are no guitarists around that I can sell my song to, then I don't bid $100 on the pen, say the next guy bids 50 but that guy can, I don't know, write a poem that he sells to some beat, uh, beatnik who goes into a jazz club and does his beatnik poetry, and then he makes a little bit less money. But that see how that regulates itself. Now the, the production and the cost are now lined up. The guy who makes $50 on the pen instead of $100 now is going to invest less in pens than he otherwise would because he can't get as much out, which is good because if he invested too much, he would have too many pens. He would not have to sell the pens for less because there are so many pens, it's easier to get them. You see what I mean? It's so the whole thing is this constant moving organism. Everybody's got a part to play. And then now try to do that as a bureaucrat. Right. You don't know any of those fucking right. steps. You're, you're like some guy who's not even part of anything. And then you're trying to pull all these levers. And then what what ends up happening to bring us back around with money? Because I know I just talked for probably like fifteen minutes. No, but it, it makes sense. Yeah, is that they essentially what's going to end up happening? It's like a Rand novel. Um, is there's going to be some fundamental miscalculation in the social engineering? People are going to act in a way that they didn't suspect and don't want. Productivity is going to go down, and it's sort of like when you lose control of your car. You go from in control to it's spinning. And now as you're trying to fight control, like you might be making it worse because you don't know because everything is spinning out. Like say you're on ice and like, you just yeah. So economically, who knows? Like maybe a bunch of banks are going to collapse because if something triggers everyone to pull their money out of the banks, like right now I don't have a crypto wallet, but um, I am within the next week or so going to get some and start buying crypto. I'm going to start buying Bitcoin as soon as I can find a secure way to do it because uh, I know it's like, okay, if I'm successful in the future and I start making money, I don't want to put my money in a bank. Right. Because I don't trust, I don't, I don't trust that one, the money's going to get inflated to hell and back. And, you know, who knows if I'm going to say something politically dissonant at some point, which I definitely will. And then, and, and then there's crackdowns. I don't know. That, that That's maybe mm. more far-fetched than the banks collapsing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. man, anything's possible, right? Yeah. Well, there, there's my... my 15-minute monetary spiel. I mean, I, it's just like you say, though, but, like, it's anything you do. Like, even at work, say, you know, the people that are running the show don't necessarily do the best job because the people below them might be smarter than them and see a better way, right? So it's like, but what's what's the best option? Like, as far as I can see, it's not terrible. I mean, it's, it's working in, in a way, but, like, if... <laughs> If you got this person trying to do his very best and this person doing his very worst, does it balance it out? Like, you know, there's always like... Not according to the Pareto distribution. Because the Pareto distribution is like the top 20% of people produce like half of the value. And so you've got like 80% of people are basically breaking even or a net drain. Which guaranteed is going to happen in anything, right? Yeah, and it, it scales badly. So like if you've got 10 people... It's actually not so bad, but if your business has a thousand people, then all of a sudden you start adding up how much you have to pay the 80%. And that's like, uh, you know, exponentially amount more. And so basically that's also why businesses get so big and inevitably fail because um, essentially it becomes harder and harder to balance and it becomes harder to, um, let's say, 
know who is and who isn't competent and to like get rid of people who are incompetent. Um, it's also why even startups go bad. Like I've seen startups where the business owner is competent and is smart, but as um, he becomes successful, he becomes more distant mm. from the ground. And it's it becomes harder and harder for him to fi either find people to replace them or maybe he doesn't trust them to do it. And so like the competent people, either they leave or like he can't like the it's a it's a difficult balance, which is actually fortunate because what that means is there's a high turnover. So what that you know what you want is for errors to be corrected by the universe. Someone starts running a business badly and it allows an opportunity for someone else to do it better to come in and dethrone them. And so therefore you get uh otherwise what's the alternative? Stagnation, right? And then things slowly crumble in entropy. Um, and yeah, things, you know, relatively speaking, things aren't so bad. Um, right. I think the fact that we can even debate that shows that like, you know, yeah. it's really not that bad. Right. Like, I mean, but it's definitely getting worse now. I mean, yeah. I'll see that. I'm happy that I don't have to have my shotgun loaded in the corner. Facts. Uh, <laughs> Facts. Um, uh, I have my revolver loaded though. So if you do break in at night, <laughs> I will shoot you. Uh, yeah. The Smith and Mass. Seriously. Seriously, I will do that. And if I'm still writing on my computer, I might not have my gun, so I'll stab you instead of the giant sword. Um, I contest. There is swords right here. Yeah, they're, 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 I keep weapons at hand. It's like that uh, Kevin Hart skit where he talks about having a hidden gun compartment all over his house. Uh, I've never heard of it. I'm sure it's hilarious. It's funny. He goes on a little bit long with it. He gives way too many examples. But it was funny for the first like three where he That's goes hilarious. through there. But um, what was I going to say? There, there was something to that. Oh, um. How have you heard anything about the concept of the, a looming national divorce? So, like the the fundamental idea is like Texas is going to break away from the rest of the U.S. Okay. and then a bunch of other states are going to essentially join Texas, and either you'll have um, the remnants of the United States, and then a bunch of individual nation. Well, yeah, I guess it'd be like uh, nation states, or um, you would have a Texas break away, and other states say we're going to, hey, Texas, can we join you? And they're going to have like something like a, a north-south split and some people are like ah oh, civil war and other people are like it'll never happen federal government will never let it happen um you haven't heard anyone talking about that i lately? mean i've heard of texas wanting to secede from the union or whatever i've heard like this is nothing new right like this has been yeah. talked about for a long time right yeah but well texas started out when they broke away from mexico um as a republic separate from the united states and they corp yeah they were like, for like a decade they were their own like sovereign republic huh. that's why texas is like this because in their foundation they they were essentially their own country and then they joined up with with the rest of the u.s um after we separated from mexico um what do you think of the idea i don't know um i don't know i guess i could go either way with it but uh i don't know if it's a bad thing or not i guess you know that uh wanting to be independent and like obviously there's some real things happening in texas like i mean you know you got like some big personalities moving there i mean it's no secret joe rogan's there now elon musk is there now i mean and a lot of people have gravitated towards that and uh, i think it keeps uh keeps you on your toes you know what i mean it keeps you like uh that hope you know there's hope that like uh we don't have to settle for you know what it is and we can kind of make what we want, I guess, you know, uh, 
I don't know if it's a bad thing. I mean, I think there would be a lot of, you know, uh, collateral damage and, like, the fact that, like, you know, because uh, obviously it's going to turn to, like, blows, no? Like, it's going to turn to, like, war? I mean, like... Maybe. Do you think American soldiers would... Because, like, right away, my first thought is it's going to be, a, like, a 50-50 split, right? Like, half of the military is going to say, like, I'm not going to go and march on Texas. So the, the other half might be willing because, like, maybe they think, no, Texas, you can't leave. That's, like, uh, treason. But then the question is, in that half of people, like, are you going to really go do military operations on, like, your fellow citizens? Your brothers. Yeah. Because part of me is skeptical about that. And I think, would the federal government want to do that? Like, would you want to, like, okay, we're going to uh, we're gonna seize back Texas and immediately have half of your, mil at least half of the military say, no, we're seceding to Texas, too. Right. Yes. Because, like, because, you know, in history, like, generals have done that. And, like, oh, you, you, might be, you might be, like, the bureaucrats in Washington, but, like, in a military chain of command, if you've got a general and then the people under him, the people under him, the people under him are all like, nah, no, nah, we have, we literally have the guns, like the missiles that you have, like we're supposed to follow your orders, but the button is here. Right. And right. all the technicians are here and they're loyal to me and our people because we're, you know, it's not unrealistic that if essentially the, threat of, of mutually assured destruction, right? Like, it would be stupid. Like, right. Because, I mean, I'm sure there are some nukes stationed in Texas. Mm. So, yes. Like, and it's not going to just be Texas. Like, if Texas goes, Florida's going to be like, if you invade Texas, like, Florida's going to help Texas. For sure. And then if Florida does that, then who else is going to... You see what I mean? Then, like, then all of a sudden, it's like north or south. But at this point, I mean, it almost seems... An almost inevitable in a way doesn't it though like the way people are gravitating towards texas florida like it's no secret like people can see that there is a depression incoming like artificially stimulated like you was talking about like we'll just hold a couple of the bags of rice here and squeeze it off a little bit there and like we was talking about you know the money they sent to ukraine and it's like at what point you know does people say enough's enough, you know, like what if you, we got to stand for something though, like you think about all the money they've printed in the last, what, couple years, eight years or so, like they printed more money then than has ever been circulated before, you know, and like people at work say, oh, we're getting a dollar raise. And I'm thinking to myself, you can't be that fucking dumb. Like we literally have no value on our money now, like period. Like, and, and then you look at like, her car just went down and we're sharing a little car right now. And I got to go buy a car with like interest rates rising and, you know, not so good credit. And it's just like, it, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's tough. You know, people's, you could, st you're starting to feel the struggle a little bit, you know, you're starting to feel it. At least I am. And, uh, it's like, if it keeps going this way, like when is enough enough, right? Like, well, I think you kind of named it with your own revelation. I think enough is enough when enough people realize that hell is a bottomless pit. When the price of food is high enough that you are seeing people robbing each other like in the street and you don't feel safe at, at home. Um, when you yourself are hungry and like we don't have 
all these comforts when you know because we're all used to like everyone's got like cell phones and television and uh, your house is at least somewhat well protecting you from the elements sure. when all of those comforts all the distractions mm. suddenly become luxuries outside of our reach mm. i think then like i can't imagine people not waking up and then they realize hell is a bottomless pit and, they, mm. and then they say no more like i'm not participating in this at all um and then like then maybe we'll have some type of uh let's say hopefully properly balanced revolutionary spirit that doesn't just devolve into total total chaos because that would be that would be bad yeah yeah for sure we i don't think anybody wants that right like Remember that spirit of Cain, the will to vengeance there. Yeah. I guess if you would have come at me in my 20s, you know, I would have been a little more righteous for the cause, I guess. But now, like, I've become softer with children and whatnot. Like, I don't want to see that, you know? Let's say wiser. Why? Probably not softer. You're probably softer when you couldn't get by the day without, like, narcoticizing yourself. Because I, I can't imagine... You can't describe, like, the needing to constantly cloak oneself in a numbing of sensations harder right in fact you could say like that was like the softest point and then the hardness comes with getting up in the morning wanting to stay wrapped up in your your warm sheets and, and saying no i gotta do some work yeah right. moving on for a couple hours man um this has been this has been a fun one uh yeah i enjoyed it quite a lot anything else you want to talk about before we go i mean i just kind of was like you know just kind of hanging on for the ride man like i said i enjoy you know picking your brain you're a very interesting guy fucking uh i appreciate the opportunity to even come over here and do this this was uh i've been looking forward to it and i'm I'm just grateful that you even asked you know uh i just uh i don't know i just i have i have hope i hope you know everybody else has hope too you know and like i said at one point i didn't have hope so that's a scary thing to like be hopeless, you know, to like, I just like encourage people to try to find something that gives you a little bit of passion that, you know, you can see that things do get better because it is, it's, it's a scary road to go down to be nihilistic, you know, and have no sense of purpose, you know? Um, but yeah, I, uh, just, like I said, I'm grateful to even be alive. You know, I feel like it's a, like I didn't experience anything before this life and I feel like I just woke up a few years ago anyway. So just really grateful to be here. So I'm grateful to have you, man. Let's uh, let's show your your new company, uh so Ernest Excavation and Concrete LLC. That's it, buddy. Right. So if you're in Wheeling, West Virginia, uh visit our sponsors today. Uh they're not really a sponsor, but I'm <laughs> I'm glad to I'm glad to give you a shout out. Thank you. Um yeah, and what what particular do you sell equipment you said? Um, just basically dirt work, um, concrete, uh, you know, you need a foundation dug, uh, water's destroying your property, uh, you know, you can reroute it, put in pipes, um, concrete wise, like you're in the mud, you need to park your cars. Um, that's basically the foundation of my company is that, that dirt work concrete. And then from there, you know, I got to take some more tests and get covered, you know, get through some of that yellow tape. But as far as it goes now, I can... I can get in there with the equipment and I can lay the concrete. So that that's the foundation of my, my business anyway. So yeah, and how we know people freaking needed all the houses and uh, property decaying and water damage is uh, 
just constant here and wheeling in this little valley. So yeah, um, look out for Allen's company, Ernest Excavation and Concrete LLC. Um, and as for me, uh, visit my website, wildislelit.com for all the stuff we're doing, all the rest of the podcasts on here, uh, or there, I should say. Uh, again, my book, my novel, Wan Smoke Broken, a fantasy fiction novel, reads like a bit of a wild western. Uh, we can think of it like European fantasy with an American twist. Um, first chapter is free on my website. I even have an audio track. You can listen to me read it and lose my voice most of the way through. Um, I've got my blog as well if you're interested in you know, East Asian philosophy. I blog about that all the time. I've got essays. Uh, I've got my editing service, which I'll be updating here soon. So be on the lookout for that. I'm really excited to open up the Wild Isle Style Guide and to let's say, make philosophers of us all out there writing fiction with uh, my thematic guidance as well. Um, I'll have better names for these things and just rattling off the top of my head. All right, friends, fellow philosophers, thank you so much for joining us, and I'll see you the next time.